I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn in it or to turn it on uh, to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 6 to, to 12 this morning. If you're using one of the pew Bibles or the Bible under the chair, if you want to turn to page 1023, you'll be in the right spot. Twenty-three-ish and a half years ago or so, about 20, yeah, about 23 and a half years ago, uh, Carrie and I, and at that time two kids, uh, moved into a cul-de-sac north of Seattle in a bedroom community north of Seattle. And the cul-de-sac in the neighborhood we moved into was all new homes, homes that had just been built. And it's very common in that part of the world um, when they built a neighborhood, the builder would have sort of four or five homes and they just build 50 of them. And so when you were in our house, if you stood, you know, on our front step, you could see two models that were the exact same as ours. And if you wanted to go to the bathroom off, the, you know, on the main level and open the window, you could look out and see a third one. And so around us, there were houses just like ours. And we lived in our house for a chunk of months. And one day, one of the neighbors who literally there was one house between our houses and our houses were close together. Their last name was also Grant, so our lives overlapped on so many levels because we got their mail, they got our mail. And so Jim came over one day, and actually I guess we were out on the cul-de-sac, and he said to me, he said, I, I just wanted to ask you some questions about your house, exact same house. I said, sure, what? He said, um, have you had problems opening and closing the doors on the second level where all the bedrooms were? I said, no, I, I don't I notice. He said, okay. He said, how about that post in, 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 in the garage? You know, like the, the second floor, two of the bedrooms, the bedrooms the kids were in, kind of came out over the garage and there was a post that came down, a vertical post that I thought was holding up the second floor. And he said, is, is your post kind of tight? Like, or does it swing? And I'm like, what? And so literally, I kind of laughed. So we walked into his garage, and literally you could swing his post. I'm like, okay. And then he said, have you noticed your garage floor sinking? <laughs> now, at that point, I ran over to our house. Now, ran, it wasn't that far. It was, you know, wasn't really much more than the, the stage. I went in, and I'm like, well, where was your floor sinking? And I'm looking, and I'm, I, I hit that post so many times. No, it's good. And the reason he asked the question is his house, all those things they were experiencing. Now, very shortly thereafter, not long after, they made a call to the builder, and the builder showed up trying to figure out, okay, why was this house that was like just months old, why were all these things happening to this house? Turned out it wasn't the only house in the neighborhood. There was another one that was having similar things. We're like, why is this all happening to this house? Well, with the services of a jackhammer in the basement, they were able to diagnose the problem. There was one wall that went all three levels of the house. They jackhammered near that and put a camera down, and what they found was somebody forgot to pour the footings underneath that wall. So the house basically was sinking. That's a little bit of a problem. I'm not a builder. I'm not an architect. I'm none of those things, but I know that's probably a problem. You know, when you build a house, you really do need a foundation under the thing. Similar analogy, if you want to build a life, you need to have a foundation. You need to have it rest on something. 
Now, as we've gone through 1 John, and we're almost done 1 John, John's kind of made a, a big deal about Jesus. And, and John has said, hey, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can be confident about life. And last week he got very specific and he said, if you have trusted the Lord Jesus, you're an overcomer. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking that sounds pretty good to be able to say, hey, I can be confident to say, I can be an overcomer. Those sound really good. Kind of like it sounds good to say, hey, you're going to move into a brand new house. I mean, that sounds really good until it starts to sink. You know, when you move into a house, and now all of you are probably going to go check things in your house today, but, you know, you want that house to be on a foundation. You want it to be sure, to connect this to what John said about Jesus. Can I really believe Jesus? You know, is Jesus really a footing that I could base my life on? Is He sure and solid? Is He secure? that I can really trust what He says, that I can trust that if I believe in Him, I am an overcomer. I mean, is that real or is that just sound something nice to get me to buy Jesus, kind of like I buy a house and then it all starts to sink? I believe John was in part inspired to write 1 John because he wanted to answer those questions, can I believe Jesus? Can I trust Him? Can I know that He's a sure footing? Because John wants us to know some things about Jesus. He wants us to say, hey, Jesus is literally the foundation of life. He wants us to embrace that. He wants us to get that. And to do that, what he wants to do, to help us see that Jesus is the true foundation, is to kind of start this paragraph we want to look at. He's going to say there's three witnesses. There's three sort of things that will declare who Jesus is. But before we get to those witnesses, let me just read verse 6, which really has all three in them. Verse 6 reads this way. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Now, if Today's your, your first day at Central. You wouldn't know we've been going through 1 John, but if you've been here, you know we've been going through the book of 1 John. And a lot of the commentators and scholars kind of tell us, you know, something's going on here. All of a sudden, John's kind of big gear shift when he comes to, to verse 6. It doesn't seem to connect very quickly or closely with what he's already been talking about. And we think the reason why John is really changing gears here, why he's bringing this up, is because in the background of writing this book, John knew that there had been false teachers. We've talked about them a few times. There were false teachers in and around the churches John cared for, the churches literally he was writing to. And these false teachers were kind of painting a picture of Jesus that was inaccurate. They painted a picture of Jesus that, in essence, was taking what was supposed to be Jesus on, you know, Jesus is the foundation and it was dissolving that foundation for people. People were thinking Jesus was the foundation, but the, it all of a sudden was dissolving and they all of a sudden weren't sure. They, they couldn't be confident. They couldn't be overcomers. The, so many of the people literally as they saw this picture painted about Jesus, they were leaving the church and just going off and having nothing to do with it anymore. They were kind of following these teachers and John's like, that's dangerous. Because John says, that's not where confidence comes from. That's not where being an overcomer comes from. That's not how life works. Jesus is the true foundation. So he says, hey, let me tell you about these three witnesses. 
Let me tell you these three things that make it very clear who Jesus is. Foundation or witness number one would be this. John says, hey, first witness would be Jesus' baptism. First thing, if you want to know who Jesus is, John says, hey, let me give you, tell you a story. Let me tell you about Jesus' baptism. Now, if you look at verse 6, you see the word water in verse 6. There is some debate, obviously. John made a big gear shift. People are sort of scratching their heads. But we think the best understanding about that word water is that John in some way is referring to Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. He's saying if you want to know about Jesus, what you need to do is you need to go back to that baptism. Now the story of Jesus' baptism was recorded in Matthew chapter 3, in Mark chapter 1, and in Luke chapter 3. And in John chapter 1, the gospel John wrote, it's kind of thematically described, kind of editorial comments saying, here's what took place. Now part of the reason why Jesus' baptism shows up in all four gospels, not many things are show up in all four Gospels, but part of the reason John's baptism does show up in all four Gospels is simply this. It marked the point when Jesus' public ministry started. It's the time when Jesus all of a sudden became sort of a a public figure, when he was going to begin to travel around Galilee and, and down into Judea and to begin to tell people about the kingdom of God. But it's also a time when not only was Jesus' ministry started, but it was also a time when Jesus' public, his identity was made publicly known. A time when it was very clearly declared, this is who Jesus is. Read with me very quickly. You'll see it on the screen if you don't want to flip there. But in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We don't know exactly how many, but there was a lot of people gathered around. A lot of people were going to the Jordan River to see John, to be baptized by John the Baptist. And in the midst of this throng, all of a sudden, Jesus is baptized and this event happens and a voice declares, He's my son. John the Baptist, who literally was the eyewitness to this, didn't miss the, he didn't miss the significance of it. And he said some words that the Apostle John recorded for us in John chapter 1 verses 32 to 34 to kind of say here's the significance of this event. And John bore witness it says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. I think John's saying, I didn't realize fully who he was at this point. But he who sent me to baptize with water had said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain he is he, he, it, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Okay, Jesus' baptism was a huge declaration to all these people gathered. This is who Jesus is. Okay, there's a sense in which Jesus chose to say, now's the time I'm going to, in a sense, pull back the veil. I'm going to declare this is who I am. And so in a very public way, through baptism, 
He allowed himself, he made the choice to say, this is the moment I'm going to declare that I'm the Son of God, that I am committed to God and God's purposes. Now, there's two things about that that are sort of implications I I want you to notice. Okay, I want to kind of draw our attention to just, just briefly. The first implication would be this. We do baptism in our church. Up there, the cross. That's where our baptismal tank is. And we do it in a way where we immerse people in water. And part of the reason why we do baptism the way we do, what kind of informs us why we look at baptism the way we do, is we understand in part from the example of Jesus that baptism is meant to be a public expression. Okay? Jesus was saying, I'm going to publicly express that I'm committed to God and God's plan to what God wants done. That's really what Jesus in part is doing in his baptism. And we as a church kind of understand that's what baptism is. It's a public expression. It's saying, I want to declare I'm committed to God. I'm committed to God's purposes. That's a part of what's taking place in the scene of Jesus. That's a part of his baptism. That's one implication I want you to see. That's why we do baptism the way we do. Okay? Second implication, though, to kind of tie back and to think about what John has told us, not just in his gospel, but also in 1 John chapter 5. John is saying this is a great way for Jesus to express his identity. He wants to make it clear he is the Son of God. He wants to, in that sense, make it clear that he is the Christ. You, you think about the story that took place, the story we could read, we read in Matthew. Who's all involved? Well, obviously Jesus is involved, God the Son, but so is the Holy Spirit. And who else is going to speak and say, this is my beloved Son other than God the Father? All of the Godhead, all of the Trinity is joined together to proclaim and make it clear, this is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. Why does that matter? Why do I need to know that? Well, John says we need to know who Jesus is. But there's even more going on than that. If you look at verse 6, again, of 1 John chapter 5, it will say that Jesus didn't just come by water in the middle of the verse, but by blood. Now, we're going to talk about blood in just a minute, but I want you to understand something. The false teachers understood and viewed Jesus' baptism too. They had a idea of what took place at the baptism. They didn't see it as Jesus being publicly revealed as the Son of God. In their minds, when the the dove came down, they didn't view that as the Holy Spirit coming down to signify and identify Jesus. They understood that as that was when the Christ, the spiritual part of Jesus, joined the physical part of Jesus. And John's saying, "Um, that's not true. Notice how does John refer to Jesus in verse 6. He calls him the Christ. Jesus Christ. See, the false teachers wanted to present a picture of a different kind of Jesus. They might use the same words. So there's a minor point here in which John and the false teachers, there's a little bit of agreement. They might all say, yes, Jesus was baptized. So there's some measure in which the story of John, the John's telling and the story the false teachers are telling, they overlap. But if you have two eight-foot circles and they only overlap an inch, 
Technically, they overlap, but that tells you there's a whole lot that doesn't overlap. Here's an important implication for us, folks. We live in a culture where people and different things will sometimes use expressions that we're used to. They might say, Jesus is the Christ. But what they mean by that is so different than what Scripture says. One of the reasons, folks, why we want to, and I want to encourage you again, part of why we write Thursday Thoughts a lot of times in putting Bible verses there is to encourage us to look at the Bible so that we hear all what the Bible says about Jesus so we know the eight-foot circle the Bible has so that we never get mixed up by that other eight-foot circle. See, John was very concerned about people that they heard this tiny bit of overlap and they said, oh, those false teachers must be good. So they went with him. They went with the false teachers and their lives were devastated. John is saying, don't end up there. John is telling us Jesus is the Christ. He was that way all along, and now he's being identified. So witness number one, back on track. It was an aside. Witness number one, how would I know who Jesus is? I know who Jesus is because it is baptism. The Trinity declared who he was. Number two, witness number two. How else would I know who Jesus is? Well, his death and resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection is number two. If you look again at verse 6, the word blood, there's not really much debate there. The word blood would, seems to be a reference to Jesus' death. Now, I said this is about Jesus' death and resurrection. The reason why is virtually every time the New Testament talks about the death of Jesus, it's assumed in the background the resurrection takes place. Really, the reason Jesus' death is significant is because of the resurrection. I mean, if Jesus simply died, he simply died. But as we affirmed, as we sang, we believe that he conquered death. We believe in the resurrection. That makes it significant. Now, it's not explicitly stated here. I understand that. But the only reason his death is significant is because of the resurrection. Focus of verse 6 is his death. And you say, why is it that John is saying, let's focus in on his death? Why is John thinking about his death? Well, one reason, again, very quickly, this kind of connects back to the false teachers. The false teachers thought, hey, we need this Christ to come on Jesus physically, but the Christ could never die. Their idea was Christ would enlighten you, and what you needed was to have this encounter with this one that would enlighten you. They'd say, if you want to be confident in life, you need this. And John's saying, folks, that's not who Jesus is. That's a lie. See, the confidence that you need in life comes from the one who died, from the one who conquered death, from the one who rose again. So he's, again, pointing, there's a difference between me and the false teachers, John's saying. There's a different story. But a second reason, not only was John talking dealing with false teachers, but I think another reason why John brings up Jesus' death is because of all the things that took place around Jesus' death. When Jesus was dying on the cross, there, were, there was an earthquake. The veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was not a normal day. Some things really happened, and why did those things happen? Again, it seemed to be to declare who Jesus was. Look very quickly with me at Matthew chapter 27. 
Verse 54, some of the people that were experiencing this, what they were seeing, what was happening, it says this, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. See, confidence that we need in life to be able to be an overcomer, where does it come from? It comes literally because Jesus died. What makes it possible to have a footing of life, a life where I can truly be confident, is because not only was Jesus baptized, but he died. That's a part of his identity. I need to know that. How can I be confident about Jesus? Because he was baptized. Because he died. Third witness. Third witness that John briefly touches on would be the Holy Spirit. You look at the end of verse 6. Kind of obvious again. In fact, he says it testifies. Who's the one that testifies? The Spirit of God does. Now, it's interesting. John writes, he doesn't say the Spirit testified. He says he testifies. It's sort of written in the present tense. It's talking about an ongoing thing. John seems to be telling us that as we go through life, the Holy Spirit can be, in that sense, communicating in a sense with us, affirming to us, reminding us, renewing us in the fact that Jesus is the Christ. We mentioned earlier about the fact, you know, we, we've had the incredible joy this last week of day camp and VBS about telling people about, telling children about the Lord Jesus. We prayed for CEF as they're going to go and do these five-day Bible clubs to tell people about the Lord Jesus. We as a church say we want to encourage other people to follow Jesus. What's taking place here with this witness is huge for us to understand. See, it's not just about you and me telling someone about Jesus. The Spirit of God is also involved. If you're afraid about telling someone about Jesus, you feel all alone in that, you're never all alone if you're telling someone about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is always present, always present to impress upon us who Jesus is. spent a lot of time on verse 6. If we took equal time on every verse in this paragraph, we'd be here a long time. There's, we're going to move a little faster now. We're actually going to read two verses. Why did John bring up these witnesses? Why does he offer us these witnesses? Okay, look at verses 7 and 8. For there are three that testify the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, if you have a King James or a New King James Bible, you're thinking, I didn't read a whole lot. There's a whole lot more in those verses, in those translations. That has to do with some things about the Bible we're reading from, uses older manuscripts. The King James uses some younger manuscripts. If you want to know about that, grab me afterwards. I'll try to explain it. But basically the idea is John is saying, hey, there's three witnesses, and here are the three. You say, John, why are you bringing up three witnesses? Well, we're not 100% sure, but most likely why John did this was there was a Jewish legal understanding that if you wanted to kind of make your court case, if this was a legal setting and you wanted to prove your case in court, you needed to present evidence, you needed witnesses. And typically the Old Testament would say you need two to three witnesses, so all of a sudden, John seems to be bringing these two to three witnesses. 
In essence, he's, John is saying, I want you to know who Jesus is. I want it to be so clear. I'm going to provide you evidence. I'm going to provide you witnesses who can tell you who Jesus is. Now, what's I think going on in the background here isn't that John just simply wants us to, he's following some legal precedent here. This isn't a legal brief. John is offering these because he desperately says we need to know who Jesus is. Last week we read in the service Isaiah 53, 6, which reminded us that we, on our own, without Jesus, we're separated from God. We are in spiritual death. That is a disaster to be. And he doesn't want us to be stay there. He doesn't want us stuck there. And so Jesus comes to make it possible so that though we're separated from God, we can be reconciled to God. And John says the only way it's going to happen for you to be reconciled to God is if you know who Jesus is. And so he says, I'm going to offer these witnesses to make it so abundantly clear that you know who Jesus is. I want you to know he is the true foundation. I don't want you to begin to build the house and say, well, we've got some stuff, let's just keep going. No, he wants to say, make sure you've got the foundation. Make sure you have Jesus And so he says, I'm going to offer these witnesses so it's so clear to you. Carrie and Kelly were a part of the Chicago trip. And so I was at home alone this week. And our dog Tebow is not a great conversationalist. Um, And so I sometimes found myself just turning on a TV so I could hear another voice at times. But what I do more prominently as I listened to podcasts and I was listening to a podcast on preaching and it said every sermon should answer the so what question. So what? So John says there's these witnesses, so what? What's the big deal? I mean, yeah, John wants me to know Jesus, so what? Why does that matter? Why is that any significance? Do I need to know this? Well, zoom in on verse 9 with me for a minute. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. The first part of verse 9 is really just sort of a, a general principle. Okay, It's sort of telling us that we have a tendency when to receive what people tell us. Okay, If three people tell you something, okay, you're in a proceeding, an event happens in your neighborhood and three of your neighbors tell you about it, you have this tendency to believe it. John's not saying that's good or bad. He's just saying that's a general operating thing in life. But then he says, if you believe the testimony of men, there's somebody greater, and that's God, and God makes a testimony. And he's saying, if we are going to believe each other, we really better believe God. He's saying, you need to pay attention to this testimony of God. Well, two questions that raises what is this testimony? Well, the way John writes it, he seems to be pointing back to what John had already said, the baptism, Jesus' death, the Holy Spirit. It's all like they're saying this testimony, this thing about the Son is God's testimony. God is wanting to communicate to us who the Son is. God, in essence, is the one that's wanting to put Jesus in front of us. We didn't create the story of Jesus. God did. And he's putting in front of us. Well, that raises a second question. Why does God put Jesus in front of us? Why is it so important for us to know this story? Look at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar 
because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Let me just make three observations related and around verse 10. Okay? The first thing, it seems like God wants us to know his son. He wants God's, God wants his testimony about his son to be in our lives, to be in us. Second thing kind of connected to that is it kind of seems then that God is really calling us to believe in his son. God's calling us to trust the Lord Jesus as our Savior. Part of the reason I think he does that, verses 11 and 12, we'll make clear, we'll read in just a second, because God believes Jesus is the foundation of life. If we don't have Jesus, we don't have life. Third thing, verse 10 kind of makes it clear. If we don't believe, we're going to make God a liar. If we don't believe God's testimony, what God has proclaimed, we make God a liar. You say, why does he bring that up? I mean, aren't people free to choose whatever they want to believe? Why does me not believing God make God a liar? Well, I think the reason why is because John knows there's this intricate connection between Jesus and God, between the Father and the Son. See, in John chapter 4, verse John chapter 14, excuse me, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. If you want to know God, you have to know me. Jesus is saying, I'm so connected to the Father, there's no way you can know the Father without knowing me. In some ways, verse 10 is telling us the reverse. If you want to know Jesus, you've got to believe what the Father said about him. If you don't believe the Father, you don't get Jesus. If you want Jesus, if you want God, you have to have both of them. They're intricately connected. Now, here's the thing. Jesus in the Bible seems to be saying there's only one way to know God and that's through Jesus. We live in a multiple choice culture, don't we? I mean, we couldn't go to Fairway right now because it's closed, but if we went, if we all just took a field trip right now and went to Walmart and walked down the grocery aisle, walked down the cereal aisle, how many brands of cereal are there? And I'm going to, 100, I, somebody, yeah, that's probably a good guess. I, I don't know. I mean, and I'll be honest, I'm sort of a purist when it comes, I don't eat that much cereal. I have oddities of food habits, but if I'm going to eat cereal, it's rice checks, plain Cheerios, or apple cinnamon Cheerios. I don't need any of the rest. In a desperate situation, I will eat cornflakes. We like multiple choice. You go down the hair care product aisle. How many shampoos do you need? A little bit of soap and water works really well. That's my experience. I mean, all these options. And we kind of get in the mindset of all these options and we apply that to everything. Our culture says there's a lot of options. I, I want God, but I don't, I don't know if I want Jesus. Or I want Jesus, I don't know if I want God. That's not an option, folks. They're tied together. God is making the testimony about Jesus so clear because the only way you and I can know Him, the only way we can be reconciled to Him, the only way we can have a life built on a true foundation is if we trust the Lord Jesus. If we ignore God to, to take it back to the introduction and about foundations, if we ignore what God says, we're turning our back on the architect and the builder 
and the building inspector who makes sure those footings are poured. And if we ignore them, we're saying, I don't want any of that. I don't really care about being confident. I don't really care about being an overcomer. I just want to live in a house that sinks. That's what we're doing. Well, let me go back. That's sort of the negative side. What if I do believe? You know, if I believe Jesus, what, what sort of transpires? What does that do for me in a sense? Well, look at verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony God, that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What does believing in Jesus give me? Believing in Jesus, John says, gives me eternal life. When the Bible says eternal life, though, it's not talking about this unending extension of life. Really what it's talking about? John chapter 17, verse 3, eternal life is knowing God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus. It means the two that are intricately tied together, your life is now tied to their life. Eternal life means right now in this moment, I know the living God. I know the one who is the true foundation of life. What does believing do to put it in the terms of what we've talked about through this series and what we talked about last week? When I believe in Jesus, I can literally be confident about life. I know there's something solid underneath me. And not only that, I can actually be an overcomer. I am an overcomer if I've trusted Christ. That's the footing of my life. Let me close with two questions. I think that kind of connect this. At least in my head they do. Let me ask you the question. Have you trusted the Lord Jesus as your Savior? John seems to be saying, hey, here's the footing of life. Here's the foundation. It's Jesus. If you want life, that's where it starts. So have you done that? Have you trusted the Lord Jesus? Second question, and I don't have it on the screen, but the very end of the gospel of, the, of 1 John, 1 John chapter 21 it says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. You may have trusted Jesus. You may, in essence, have that foundation laid. But are you staying with that foundation? Are you putting your weight on that foundation? Or do you keep going and looking for other things to give you life? Folks, there is only one thing that can give you life, and it's not a thing. It's a person. Jesus is saying, here I am. You know, we sang, it is well. You know what makes it well? When the foundation of your life is Jesus and nothing else. If it's not Jesus, it's not well. Do you want to be well? Let's pray.